It's the weekend, and this is your DSR Daily Bonus Brief. I'm Grant Haver. And I'm Chris Cottonor. Today, we're joined by Jacob Stokes, a senior fellow for the Indo-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Jacob, thanks for joining us. Hey, Grant. Uh, Great for having me. Hey, Chris. The 20th Chinese Communist Party Congress is set to kick off on Sunday. What happens at a typical Congress, and why should our listeners care about this one? Sure. So, you know, a nationalist con- or a national Congress is at least nominally the highest leadership body for the Chinese Communist Party or the CCP. This is a meeting that takes place every five years and brings together around 2,300 members from across the party. A party has 96 million members for a week of meetings and ceremonies in the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. So this is the 20th time a party congress has happened since the Chinese Communist Party was founded in 1921. So these are are big deals. The events are highly scripted, and most of the decisions are hashed out well in advance. But I would say that several things of importance happen during the party congress or will happen during this party congress. First, we, we are likely to see Xi Jinping, China's leader, get a third term as general secretary of the Communist Party. China is a party state, but the party really rules. And this is a a communist party meeting, not not a meeting of the Chinese state. Xi Jinping will get, is likely to get a third five-year term as leader of the communist party. This has been sort of long forecast and telegraphed, so it won't necessarily be a surprise when it likely happens, but it's still the most important thing about this party congress, and it potentially sets up Xi Jinping to rule indefinitely going forward. Second, The Congress starts out with what's called a work report, but it's basically a long speech that's given by Xi Jinping uh, that could be somewhat comparable to a U.S. State of the Union or inaugural address in the United States. It often takes several hours to actually read the whole thing, and it covers a full range of domestic and international issues. And it sort of frames how China has seen its its activities and progress over the last five years, but also sets a policy agenda going forward for the next five across almost every thinkable issue. And because of the way this document is produced, it's what we in the China studies field call authoritative. If you're looking for something that really represents what the Chinese government thinks, plans on doing, you can look to their work report and find a a reliable source. A third thing that, you know, is likely to happen is, is we'll see changes to the Communist Party's internal constitution. We'll likely see those changes. Important ways, some of this can get pretty arcane and nonsensical, but I'll try to keep it top level. Essentially, things we're likely to see are potentially what China calls the two establishes. And this is in the party parlance that that Xi Jinping is kind of the core or the center of the party, and that Xi Jinping thought his ideological thinking and writings will be given leading status as CCP ideology, or that's at least what we expect is possible to happen here. This really matters because it helps Xi tie himself to the party, both as a man, as an ideological agenda, and to kind of make himself indistinguishable from from the party and therefore harder to separate. It's also sort of a barometer on Xi's grip on power. And then fourth and finally, and we we can get down deeper into the weeds onto this, but we're likely to see, uh, or we will see changes to the leadership below Xi Jinping in the the Politburo, which is the top 25 officials in China, and the even more elite Politburo Standing Committee, the top, uh, what's currently a group of seven people, but has been slightly different sizes in the past. 
And importantly, we'll, we'll see uh, China's premier, Li Keqiang, retiring. And so someone else will be stepping in as, as premier. And that will be particularly important because that job oversees the economy in China or has historically all those kind of questions about uh, the degree to which Li Keqiang has been able to do that. So those are kind of the big buckets of issues that we can expect to see coming out of the party Congress. Hey, Jacob, I feel like the Chinese government is a bit of a black box for most Americans. Could you just talk a little bit about the government in general and then how that sort of relates to the party and how they operate on a day-to-day basis? In general, I think it's important to understand this concept of a, of a party state. So China is not, does not have a government like you would in, in, in Western countries where you know, the, the state and the government is kind of the main actor. In China, the party is, is the main actor. And this is the, the Chinese Communist Party that has ruled the People's Republic of China since they won the Chinese Civil War in 1949. And so what that means is that what the leadership changes and the political trends that are happening in China's Communist Party shape the affairs of the state. And one important factor to note is that Xi Jinping has been, this is at the end of his second five-year term in power. So he's been in power nearly a decade. And one of the major trends that, that Xi Jinping has carried out is he's kind of reinserted the role of the party into the state to a greater degree than we've seen really since Mao Zedong, uh, China's founding leader. And because there were major excesses in, in the Mao era that, you know, what was known as the, the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, where many Chinese people died, and it was kind of driven by a lot of ideological actions. In the aftermath of that, Chinese leadership tried to be less ideological and more practical and technical in their governance, and to cede some of the power from the party to the state. So kind of bureaucrats with technical expertise overseeing their areas of jurisdiction. But that pendulum has now sort of swung back in important ways under Xi Jinping. And so we see the role of political ideology, the role uh, of becoming more important in the day-to-day life uh, not just of people in the government, but, but everyday Chinese people, but also a move away from kind of technical and pragmatic governance in, in some key areas. And so I think one of the practical effects of that for Chinese people on a day-to-day basis is, is something like what we see with the, the zero COVID policy, China's very strict protocols for handling COVID-19 even though much of the rest of the world, including many of China's neighbors, has, have moved away from a strict sort of quarantine and lockdown policy of handling COVID-19, China's still sticking with, with a very, very strict zero COVID policy. And that me- that's beginning to, to really weigh on the economy and cause a lot of challenges in that respect. But it's seen by the government and by Xi Jinping himself as kind of a signature achievement in China's handling of, of, of the pandemic. So I think what's important to know about the role of the party in China and, and that it's growing is there's less room for dissent overall and less room for kind of policy debate. And that's, that has practical effects in terms of what the government does day to day. So I tend to think of Xi as going for a third term, bringing the party more into the government, and sort of Xi Jinping thought as being 
a thing that's actually going to partially crumble China because you need the bureaucracy and the the structures to keep from a personal authoritarian regime, which I see as very weak. Do you think that's the case? Do you think this is potentially problematic? Or do you see this as like, Xi just wants to be the best and five years from now, he'll shuffle off and be just another former grandee? It's pretty clear that Xi Jinping intends to rule for the indefinite future. One of the things about what had previously been sort of seen as the the Chinese system in at least the last two decades under Xi Jinping's two predecessors, Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin, was essentially you would get two terms, but at the end of your first term, your likely successor would be brought up into the high ranks of the government, at least the Politburo, if not the Politburo Standing Committee, and so that you could begin to train them and there'd be kind of a sense of policy continuity. But in effect, what it also did was make Chinese leaders, there's a little bit of a lame duck kind of uh, dynamic going on, like we would have in the United States as, as people start to look to the leader in waiting rather than the leader who's, who's already there. And so Xi Jinping wanted to avoid that status. In addition, there's always kind of a balance in the post-Mao, especially the post-Deng Xiaoping era in China. There was a move away from kind of centralizing authority. And in the Chinese system, the result had been in, in a couple decades that there were kind of fiefdoms within the government, within different factions. And one of the effects of that had been a, a growing corruption, in, especially as the Chinese economy grew. There were a lot of opportunities to use political power for, to build wealth. And so when Xi Jinping came to power, he saw his predecessor, Hu Jintao, who was universally considered a pretty weak leader, in part because he was subject to these, to these forces, and wanted to fix that. Because it was important to him, he thought, to be able to carry out his agenda, he needed to address corruption in the system and re-centralized power and bring back kind of ideological fervor in, in the party. Of course, at the same time, he used that, especially the corruption crackdown, to take out his political enemies uh, in different factions of the party and thereby remove people in the system, most of whom were legitimately corrupt because a lot of the system drives you to that place but also that could have been alternative power bases to Xi Jinping and has pretty systematically, very systematically gone about taking out what could be alternative power centers, both in the government, but also in in society in places like large tech companies. I would say that over time, that certainly authoritarian governance, the record is pretty bad over a long period of time. But I think within the context of, of China, Xi Jinping had an argument that if the Chinese Communist Party was going to stay in power, that he needed to do something about these kind of fiefdoms and especially corruption. And so he really set about consolidating power around himself, but also carrying out a theory for how to make the party party control over China more sustainable in the, in the decades to come. Earlier, you mentioned China's zero COVID policy. I was wondering if you see that changing if they if they're they've faced incredible backlash you know if that's something that would change anytime soon you know given the slowing economy 
many observers have been looking to the 20th Party Congress as uh, a potential kind of pivot point or a moment when you could see a major shift in China's policy. I think that's unlikely to happen for a few reasons. One is that, and this is somewhat emblematic of the rigid policy discourse in China, is there's kind of a circular argument about zero COVID being, being effective. I think basically the argument is during COVID, you saw high rates of infection, but, but also deaths in the United States and other places around the world due to uncontrolled COVID-19. And that whatever the costs of a zero COVID policy, that those very high numbers of deaths were not evident in China. Now, their official counts are probably too low, but, it's, but it stands to reason that at least deaths from COVID-19 have not been at, at quite the same levels as they were in, in other parts of the world. And so that kind of argument is, but is, has been sustained. But then the question is, you know, how long after the rest of the world has opened up and stopped doing lockdowns can this policy be sustained, especially as new, more transmissible variants make the difficulty of doing zero COVID style lockdowns harder and harder over time? And then there's just sort of the challenge of, you know, China doesn't yet have its own highly effective mRNA vaccine like we have uh, in the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna and, and others in, in the West. That's been a major flaw in, in China's policy response that uh, I think would also be sort of a prerequisite for moving to, um, uh, to a more open policy. But I think this broader question of how much economic pain as a result of zero COVID, will it take to induce a policy shift is very much an open one. Because whether it's uh, zero COVID or the crackdown on education or technology companies, Xi Jinping has shown a willingness to sustain pretty large amounts of economic pain and see a, a, a major slowdown in China's economic growth in order to advance its preferred policies. So, but where the threshold is for a, a policy change has is you know remains to be seen. That's the end of the first part of our conversation with Jacob Stokes about the upcoming Chinese Party Congress. Join us tomorrow as we finish the conversation, talk about China's economy and more issues in the US-China relationship. <laughs>